If you would, please join me as we open up God's Word. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18. If you didn't bring a Bible, take the one out in front of you, because I want you to have it. There's actually a lot of context around it we're not going to have time to get into today, but I encourage you to go back and read throughout the week. Um, we're going to be, again, in, in Luke, chapter 18, uh, beginning at verse 9. The Pharisee and the tax collector. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up by himself and he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It was about two, two weeks ago now, I, I went in for my, my annual physical with my doctor. And every year when I go in, it always includes a quick trip to the phlebotomist, right? They do the routine blood work, and so uh, that's what they did. And, and I'm not a medical professional, so what happens now is you go into the doctor, you get results, and suddenly you're getting them on your phone before you even get a call from the doctor. And so my app started to ring, and I started to get these results popping in one at a time. And I don't look at the raw numbers because that means nothing to me. Every time they come in, what I do is I always skip ahead to the page that compares my results to what's considered the results that are within a normal range. That's all I really care about because when I compare those numbers, I can tell what places I'm more than likely healthy and what places maybe I need to look into further. And I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about the fact that normally in life, comparison to others gets a bad rap, doesn't it? We're always taught not to compare ourselves to others. We tell our kids, don't compare yourself to other kids on the playground. We tell adults, don't try to keep up with the Joneses. But when it comes to our health, comparison is actually essential. I read one article that put it this way, comparison is is fundamental to clinical medicine as it is to any other scientific discipline. In most clinical situations, when a doctor is faced with a laboratory test result for his patient, he will probably first like an answer to the fundamental question, if this particular patient were in good health, would this test result be the same? And while that answer to that question can never be answered with absolute certainty, right? Those tests just give us one glimpse into a, a very complicated thing, which is called the human body. But the best approach that we have come up with is to determine our health by comparing ourselves to the people around us that we have determined in other ways are thriving, healthy, and well. 
And when I think about that, I think, man, we don't just do that with our blood work, do we? <laughs> we do that in all sorts of different ways. And that's leading us into the reading that we're about to read today, the reading that we just read. And today's reading in the Gospel of Luke, we're finding ourselves in the middle of a series of teachings by Jesus on what it looks like to live as a citizen of the kingdom of God. In other words, Jesus has begun to lay the groundwork for a completely different set of standards by which we are to compare our lives. It's a new range, if you will, for us to look at to determine whether or not our lives are thriving and healthy and well. But just like today, people then were already comparing themselves to other things. They were already comparing themselves to other people. And I think the reason we do that, and we do that too, right? How many of you, show of hands, just want to make sure this is a relevant sermon, compare yourself to other people. Raise your hand. All right, good. I'm, and the rest of you are lying. I always have to remind that. Uh, we'll talk about that next week, okay? We're all in this together. Now, now don't feel bad. I think this is, there's an innate reason why we do this. And I think the reason that we do this is because we are striving to be healthy and thriving and well. And so we compare ourselves to other people because we think they're going to help us see how to live the way in which God has called us to live. And so we end up doing this in one of two ways. One way is we find somebody that we assume is a case study for the higher end of the normal range. This is somebody in your life that you're watching from the outside and you say, that person has it all together. That person has everything figured out. They don't have any problems. That couple is nothing but sunshine and roses in their marriage. I want to have a marriage like that. That parent doesn't struggle at all. Just look at the pictures they're posting on Facebook or Instagram. They don't ever have any problems. Again, show of hands, how many of you can think of somebody who you've compared yourself to like that? Show of hands. All right, so that's a lot of us can relate to that. That's one option. Here's the other option, though. We'll find somebody that makes us feel better about ourselves because we assume that they are an example of the bad side of the normal spectrum. We look at them and we say, well, at least I'm not that guy. At least I'm not as bad of a parent as that person. Look at their kid freaking out in Walmart. At least my kid's not freaking out in Walmart. I say that because my kids have freaked out in Walmart. So I've been on both ends of that one. Uh, you look at a couple and you say, well, at least I'm a better husband than that guy. At least I'm a better wife than she is. Now, here's the problem with both. Okay, let me just ask again, make sure we're still relevant. How many of us have done that? Raise, show of hands. Okay, good. And the rest of us are still dealing with deception in ourselves, okay? So we really have to talk about that. Here's, here's the problem, no matter which one you can relate more to today. When it comes to a blood test, again, not a medical professional, but what I read tells me that the way that they determine the normal ranges that I get to see in my app when I go to the doctor, it's a very clinical, scientific, and controlled study. They have done, they've gone to painstaking efforts to be able to determine that the group of people who have defined the normal range are healthy and thriving and well. However, when you and I are comparing ourselves to the parents in the other aisle in Walmart, or the picture that you're seeing on Instagram, 
or whatever you think you know about that person from the outside looking in, my guess is that you have not studied them as technically as we're studying the people who are helping us determine the normal ranges of our blood work. We know very little about the people around us that we judge ourselves against. Even the people you live with. Even your spouse, because you don't know their inner world. It doesn't matter. We don't know nearly as much as we think we do. And so Jesus is going to challenge us in our reading today. And he's challenging us to stop comparing ourselves to other people. But instead, he tells us to compare ourselves to God, which on the surface is like, whoa. I mean, my goodness, if I can't compare to Gary Ellsworth over here, then how is that going to work when I'm comparing myself to God? That sounds intimidating. But by the end of the parable, I hope you see that there's hope and that it's actually better. And so I want to read through it again and go through it slowly. So let's start again at verse 9 of chapter 18. To some who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, I want to give a little bit of context here so that we understand the characters of the story that we're reading. Pharisees were religious leaders, and you probably already know that, um, during the days of Jesus in the Jewish faith. Uh, but what you might not know is that the word Pharisee actually derives from the Hebrew word for separate. Separate, because these folks separated themselves from everybody else as being the ones who were seen to be faithful to all of the laws of their religion, all 600-plus laws in the Torah. These were upper-middle-class, influential spiritual leaders. These were influential leaders because the other Jewish people around them looked at them as the standard by which to live. And they set the standard. They set themselves out to set the standard, at least on the outside. The problem was... Nobody could live up to the standard that they set. And the more we look into history, the more we realize that they couldn't even live up to the standard that they were setting for other people. And I think, you know, we've, we've all done that, right? Not only have we done that in looking at other people in comparison, but we've all also been Pharisees. We've all set our own standard. We've all had moments and seasons and attitudes where we've looked in the mirror of our hearts and we've said, I pull myself up by my own bootstraps. I love that phrase because every time somebody says it to me, I say, who gave you your bootstraps? Who gave you the muscles that you had to grab your bootstraps? Do you know some people are born without bootstraps, right? And yet we all are Pharisees at times. We all look in the mirror and say, I did it myself. I have everything that I need. I have what it takes. I'm better than everyone else. And so put yourself in the role of the Pharisee. The Pharisee and the tax collector have come to pray. In verse 11, we're going to hear the prayer of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself. And he prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers. Uh, I thank you, God, that I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice per week, and I give a tenth of all I get. Not only does he follow all of the rules, but like a good Pharisee, he's added a bunch of rules 
on top of the rules that are already there. For example, for the Jews, the, the only time the law commands them to fast is once a year during the Day of Atonement. That was when they were to fast. But Pharisees would fast twice a week. They were called to tithe, right? We even follow that as well um, in the church, even though we're not bound to it anymore. And, and the tithe was to give 10% of everything you earn. But Pharisees, and, and this Pharisee in particular, doesn't just do that, but gives 10% of everything he receives. That means inheritances. That means um, sales proceeds. That's even, even giving 10% of the $5 bill that this Pharisee's grandma still sends him on his birthday every single year even though he doesn't need the money anymore he's tithing it to the church he's doing all of those things another thing about pharisees that you should know is that not only were they separated by their own piety but they wanted to be separated from anybody that wasn't like them they wanted to be completely separated from those who were not Jewish. And at the most extreme side of the Pharisees' tradition was those who said that they didn't even want to communicate with somebody that wasn't Jewish, a, a Gentile. They, they didn't want to communicate with them. They had a, a lot of tension around the Roman Empire, the government, because they believed that they should be in charge. And so what that meant was that enemy number one for these Pharisees were often tax collectors because tax collectors were there with the Roman Empire going out and collecting taxes taxes that they despised because they were paying them to the pagan government and I share all of this because it makes sense if you know the context that the person that this Pharisee is going to use to compare himself to to create this standard range to discern in his mind, am I healthy and thriving and well, is somebody he greatly despises, which is a tax collector. And he says about the tax collector, at least I'm not that guy. And I think to myself, we do that too, right? Like when we dig back into our own Pharisee tendencies, we do the same thing. We think, man, I, at least I don't drink as much as that person, right? They drink every day. I just drink on the weekends. That's okay. That's what we say, right? Or, or how about this one? Okay, let's be a little patriotic. At least I'm not a Republican. At least I'm not a Democrat. Yeah, yeah, some of you are ready to walk out. See, see what that did? You see what that did? You see what we do? You see how this plays out in our world right here and right now? You see how this mindset permeates everything? We're all looking for a standard by which to compare ourselves to. We're all looking for something to tell us that we're okay. But when it comes, so, so that's, that's what's going on here. And so you've got the Pharisee and the tax collector. They both they both come to the temple to pray. We read the prayer of the Pharisee. Let's look at the prayer of the tax collector. Let's look at that. Verse uh, 13. The tax collector stood at a distance. So just imagine he's not even walking into the doors of the sanctuary. The tax collector stood at a distance. He wouldn't even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and he said, say these words with me, God have mercy on me a sinner. Say it with me again. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's it. One sentence. He's not comparing himself to anybody else. He is not boasting. 
He's not going above and beyond and setting his prayer apart so that people will see him and think higher of him than other people. He can't even bring himself to walk through the doors of the church. Many, many of us have heard the phrase, maybe you've said it about yourself, I can't go to church because if I walk into the church, the walls will fall down. <laughs> you ever said that before? I, I, th I think the tax collector started it. I think in Greek, that's what that meant. I think it's basically the same thing. That's, that's, that's exactly what he's saying here. And he had good reason to say it. The other thing I want to point out is that we don't know the details about the tax collector or the Pharisee, but Jesus does not dispute the facts of either one. And so what that tells us is that we can only assume that when the Pharisee says that he's giving lots of money to the church, that he's really giving lots of money to the church. He's not sneaking food when he's fasting twice a week, but he's actually fasting just like he says he does. He's doing all sorts of things the right way. And if we can assume that, we also have to assume that the tax collector has done some pretty dark things. That the reason that he feels like the temple is going to cave in on itself when he walks in is because he has made some mistakes. And we don't know what those specific demons are, but he has good reason to be ashamed. He calls himself a sinner because he is one. And the sins that are on his mind and in his heart are so dark that he can't even look up to heaven to pray. And so you have a Pharisee and a tax collector. And we both are Pharisees and tax collectors. We can relate to both of them. And the question I want to ask you now is, whose prayer is God going to answer? Whose prayer is God going to answer? Jesus answers that question. Take a look at this verse. Jesus says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Anybody answer the question, whose prayer does God answer? Anybody? The tax collector. Those of you online, if you didn't say that, that's what everybody here said. The tax collector. Yes, that's true, but also it's kind of a trick question. <laughs> because if you look back, you'll see that the tax collector is actually the only one who asks God for anything in his prayer in the first place. You see that? He's the only one that asks God for anything. What does he ask God for? He asks God for mercy. He asks God for mercy. The Pharisee, on the other hand, he comes before God and he tells God how great he is. But see, the Pharisee and the tax collector are the same because they're both trying to get to the same goal. They both want to be justified. They both want to, to find their acceptance in their heavenly father. They want to be thriving. They want to be healthy. They want to be well. And they know instinctively that in order to achieve those things, they have got to be right with their father in heaven. And I think about this on, on our plane, right? Like, like if you live with someone, if you're married, for example, and, and you're not right with that person, does it not affect everything else in your life? If your spouse is angry with you, food doesn't taste the same. 
You don't sleep as well. You're short with your kids. You go to work and you're all stressed out. And it's all rooted by not being right with that other person. And when that happens, we are often guilty of doing the same thing the Pharisee does because we think that that's what it's going to take to justify us, right? Your spouse is angry at you. What do you do? You come before them and you say, well, here are the ten reasons why I'm right and you're wrong. (laughs) Right? You you make a case that that you've done everything that you're supposed to do. Last time you did that, how well did that work? Anybody? (laughs) Did it work well for anyone? Where your loved one was upset with you and you said to them, here's how awesome I am. You shouldn't be mad at me anymore. How did that work? (laughs) Typically doesn't work with other people. It doesn't really work well with God either. I mean, look at this. Is this not what we're doing as a country right now? Is this not the philosophy that we have so often in so many different things as the air got sucked out of the room when I mentioned different political parties, right? Is this not what we're doing in so many different places? Tomorrow is Independence Day, right? And we set that as a day apart to remember and be thankful for our independence as a nation. And and I do want to say that as difficult of a place as we find ourselves as a nation today, it is still important, (laughs) That we be thankful, that we thank God for blessings that we have not earned, bootstraps that we have not pulled up ourselves, the freedoms that we so much take for granted and have been sacrificed for us to have. We should be thankful. But one of the sins that we have inherited as a nation that was built upon independence, if you look back at our history, is that independence from Great Britain was never enough for us. It's never been enough for us. We desire independence from anyone that isn't like us. That's the sin that we have inherited. And in a a country as diverse as our own, it is that desire for independence that's killing us, is it not? That's what's killing us right now. Friends, in church, on Independence Day weekend, hear me when I say this. We don't need independence from each other. We need independence from sin. We need independence from the things that are dragging us down. We need independence from our brokenness. This is what's killing the Pharisee. His prayer is ridiculous, right? Like you read the prayer, it's obnoxious. Look at how awesome I am, right? You read it and you go, why does Jesus even need to tell us that's wrong? But notice that Jesus doesn't condemn the prayer. He doesn't condemn the prayer because sometimes we know how to be more lofty about it and flowery, but we pray the same prayer. We've said that prayer a thousand times, every single one of us. It's a ridiculous prayer. Jesus doesn't condemn it, but what he does do is he says only one of the two men that are praying walked away with what they really needed. They both needed to be justified. They both needed to be reconciled with God. They needed to be reconciled with God so that they could be reconciled with the world. And it began with the tax collector's prayer. Say it with me again. God... Have mercy on me, a sinner. If you want to know how we're going to fix the brokenness in this nation and in our world right now, it's praying that prayer. I want all the Democrats and the Republicans and the Independents, I want all of you to pray the prayer right now. God, have mercy on me, 
a sinner. And I think we need more mercy, so let's do it again. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. One of you didn't agree with that prayer yet. Let's say it again. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. This is our hope. It's always been our hope. And it always will be our hope that we would together pray, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the hope of the world because we all need it. It reminds me of this picture. I like to take it out every once in a while. You've been around St. John's for long enough. You know what this picture is. It's a picture of Jesus. Um, this was drawn by Nona Grunseth. Raise your hand if you remember Nona Grunseth might remember her husband, right? He was an administrator in the schools for many years. Uh, when I came to St. John's Nona, um, she had two titles uh, at St. John's. These were official titles she was very proud of. The first one was she was our resident comedian. And the second one was that she was the oldest member of St. John's Lutheran Church. Now, several people have exceeded her age at this point. Um, but at that time, she was very proud to be that person. And I went to visit her in her home, and she showed me that she was an amateur artist. And she had drawn this picture of Jesus. And, and I told her, just, just, I loved it. And she said, well, then I want you to have it, Pastor. And, and so I, I was so grateful to receive it. I have it in my office. It's up at the highest point in my office. Um, but I have, I'll tell you something that I don't think I've shared, at least in a sermon before, um, is my children have gotten older. They have told me that this picture creeps them out. Do you know why it creeps them out? Because of the eyes. You see that? Some of you are like, I get it, right? It's a beautiful picture. The eyes are looking right at you. Do you see that? Like, you might not have been able to put your finger on it, but it's like Jesus is watching you. <laughs> it's like he's looking right into your soul, and that can feel a little creepy. And I think to myself, that's not unlike the experience the tax collector had when he knew he was a sinner and he could not walk into the church. That's how he felt. It's a little uncomfortable. It's the same way the Pharisee felt coming before God. God is the standard. I don't meet the standard, and I'm uncomfortable. The, the, the Pharisee, he's just as uncomfortable as anybody else. Have you ever met someone who's so insecure that they act secure all the time? <laughs> that they tell you all of their accomplishments before you've even had a chance to ask them? That doesn't make that person a secure person. That just means that they're reaching for security in all of the wrong places. Both the tax collector and the Pharisee are feeling naked and insecure in the presence of a perfect God. But only one of them is secure enough to ask that God for the mercy that he needs, the tax collector. And so on this Independence Day weekend, what I want to ask you is, are you secure enough? in your faith in Jesus Christ, to ask God for mercy? Are you secure enough to ask him for what you need? Are you secure enough to admit before God that, that you too have prayed and acted like a Pharisee? I have. I've been in that place. And if you're in that place right now, I want to tell you something, because I believe you are. I think the only way our culture sees 
an acceptable way to behave right now is to be a Pharisee. That's all it is. You're a Pharisee on one side or you're a Pharisee on the other. It's the only way anybody's accepted. And so we're all guilty of it because we want to be accepted, right? And so we can come together and we can admit it. And I want to tell you that when we admit it, Pharisees can choose to follow Jesus too. There's another Pharisee in the Bible. You might have heard his name before. You know what his name was? Paul. He wrote a bunch of the Old New Testament and he followed all the rules too. He prayed prayers just like this Pharisee prayed and it was never enough and he came to Jesus and he gave his life to Jesus and he prayed for mercy and he later went on to write in Romans 3.22, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are, for everyone has sinned. Say this with me. We all fall short of God's glorious standard. All of us, everybody. Yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins. Instead of hiding behind our achievements, which are never enough, the alternative is to admit our shortcomings. So that when we admit our shortcomings, we can hear from a God who loves us and says to us, I know. That's why I sent my son. You are forgiven, justified, redeemed. Come in. You're welcome. I've been a parent long enough to know that this is the way that you truly bond with your children. My children are really excited right now because the younger ones are learning a very important life skill. They're learning how not to pee in their diaper when they're sleeping at night. And what that means is every single morning when they have a dry diaper, you know what they do? They come running into our bedroom and they say, Mommy, Daddy, look, I didn't pee. And what do we do, right? We say, woohoo, that's awesome, because it is, right? But I've been a parent long enough to know that the real bonding with my children doesn't come in those moments. It comes in the moments when they wet the bed. It comes in the moments when they make a mistake. It comes in the moments when they need grace and mercy extended to them and they fall down. And as a father, I am there to pick them up. Now, let me tell you, earthly parents, we are never perfect at this, but our Father in heaven is. We can have faith. Come to him and pray. Say it with me. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Would you join me now as we pray? Lord God, on this Independence Day weekend, our prayer in church is that you would lead us to a place where we would recognize that we are wholly dependent on you. There's no such thing as independence, even even in heaven. (laughs) We're not going to celebrate independence, but we are going to live in eternal dependence of a perfect God who gives us everything we need. We don't have to wait. And so like a child that comes to a parent 
and their shortcomings and mistakes. May we come to you and find you ready to embrace us as sons and daughters in forgiveness and grace. May we know your character. May we know that you are good. And may we come before you and pray, God, have mercy on me, sinner. Republicans and Democrats, conservatives and progressives, rich and poor. May we all pray the same prayer, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And may that prayer be what unites us, not just as one nation, But the power of that prayer is that you invite us into a kingdom that when you return will invite and unite every nation and every tribe. And it begins with these words, God, have mercy on me, sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, have mercy on me. On me, sinner. It is in Jesus' name we pray.